Hey there, and welcome to episode 60 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. My name is Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 60 of the podcast, our guest is uh, quite a successful businessman and entrepreneur who has had success uh, across multiple industries, and uh, he's also quite uh, big into endurance athletics, has a number of marathons and triathlons to his name, in addition to uh, some super cool environments he's gotten to run in, as well as a mountain that he actually was able to climb. And uh, he also happened to compete in the 2013 Boston Marathon, uh, at which there was uh, the bombing, if you recall. Uh, So some really interesting insight and perspective on that uh, whole event. So let's go ahead and get running now with episode 60. All right, so my guest here on this episode of Eyes Free Sports is Dan Berlin. And Dan is a very successful entrepreneur and businessman and also quite an accomplished uh, endurance athlete who happens to be blind. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate joining you today. Absolutely. I know I've, uh, like we were talking about before we started, I've had the chance to kind of read about your background and your achievements. And I know there's so many different things we can cover here. So we're going to kind of pick out the highlights. And, you know, I think this will be a lot of fun. (laughs) We know what they say. Don't believe everything you read. (laughs) That is true. Yep. Yep. Good advice. Okay, so Dan, let's just start off with your, you know, your youth, your childhood. Just talk to me about uh, where you were born, grew up, and your formative years. Oh, definitely. So I, I grew up in a tiny town in central Pennsylvania. If we had a thousand people in my town, it would have been a lot. <laughs> and um, you know, so uh, I, actually, I did. I wasn't born there, but lived there between the ages of five and fifteen, which is such a, a formidable, you know, time period for for a youngster. And um, while I was there, I was diagnosed. I was seven years old as a second grader. And um, yeah, a little tiny school that we had there. But my teacher noticed I couldn't really see the board or what's, you know, she picked up on something. So my parents uh, took me off to uh, an ophthalmologist and eventually a retinal specialist where I was eventually diagnosed with star guards and then eventually re-diagnosed as cone rod dystrophy, which is what I consider that I have now. Um, although it, it doesn't make that much of a difference because it's just the name. The, the outcome was the same that, um, I really was steadily losing my central vision and then most of the rest of my vision on from age seven. Gotcha. I see. And then in terms of education, uh, were you pretty much mainstreamed, you know, through high school? Or? Yeah, 100%. And this is the thing. I look back, my parents are fantastic. Never really had any sort of special services all the way through high school. And I, w- I was losing my vision through high school. So I was actually um, able to get a driver's license and was able to have that for several years. So my progression was slow. One of the, one of the things I knew I was different, though, uh, over the time, I was a you know, second grader playing Little League baseball or trying to play. And I, I just remember you know, playing the outfield because I wasn't that good, but I couldn't see the ball. But I didn't realize I was the only one that couldn't see the ball. I thought everybody played like this. And right. I remember the ball was hit. Everyone was calling my name. And I stuck my glove out like I was supposed to. And it hit me right in the middle of the chest. You know, I, I never even saw it. I just knew it was coming to me because everyone was calling my name. And that's when I started to realize, too, that, okay, well, they're seeing things a little different than I am. But I really just buried it away. You know, I, I never told anybody, you know, all the way up through college, you know, 
maybe there was a couple people that knew I couldn't see well, but I don't think I ever came out and explicitly told anyone that. So bottom line is I had, I, I really had no resources um, all the way through college and graduate school. Gotcha. Wow. That's yeah. Definitely shows, you know, to, to be able to get through all that without that support. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> Well, it also shows hindsight. And what I've learned is, you know, I was afraid to ask back then. I was so afraid of being different. And I was right. on that borderline of, you know, the passable. And I still get that today. You know, I'm out, I'm out with friends sometimes and I'll get people to go, oh, we, we forget you're blind. You know, it's just, you know, it wasn't until I saw you walk into that pole that <laughs> I realized, yeah, you know where you're going. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm just very good at faking it. But that, that was my detriment when I was young, too, and evolved into my career where it was liberating when I just owned it and um, was open with everyone else. And I realized it made, it made me feel better. But most importantly, it made everybody around me feel better. It, it got rid of this level of uncomfortableness. Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, we had talked about before as well, uh, I, I can certainly relate to that path. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, especially adults who are, you know, fairly confident in themselves and then get to that point in life, um, just, you know, like you were saying, accepting your blindness, accepting who you are as a person, it takes time for a lot of people. And, you know, once you do, it's, it's a great feeling. Yeah. And it, it's hard. It's challenging, though, because, um, you know, we don't want to be separate. We don't want to have a separate, you know, instructor or, you know, play on a different team. Sure. And it's that balancing act. And I mean, um, that's where sports, I think, really was so empowering. I played sports through high school. And um, that was such a good thing for me, even though I had to change my positions as my as my eyesight got worse, you know. I was a football player and um, that was a sport that just, I had to move to positions where I could still play and contribute, but maybe not have to have my eye on the ball all the time. And um, I still look at those as some of my best memories of high school. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yo. Um, so talk to me a little more about your education as far as college and then your kind of early career pursuits. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so what, uh, it wasn't the best school in the world I was going to as a high school when I started. So my parents uh, moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, so I went to high school in Hershey for my last three years, which again was in one of these, um, looking back, pretty traumatic experiences. I moved the middle of my sophomore year. So I went one and a half years in a high school, um, kind of a rural high school in central Pennsylvania, then moved to a bit bigger high school in Hershey, but came in over January, you know, didn't know a soul. And um, looking back, I think that really helped me in a way of um, figuring out how to problem solve, how to meet people, how to adapt quickly. Because it's, it's such a difficult age in any case. And then moving to a place where I don't know anyone, it was like having a fresh start there when I didn't really particularly want a fresh start but it is the way it unfolded that created a, a level of stress that um, really focused in on my vision issues and allowed me to um, hide it in a lot of ways that, that um, looking back, I wish maybe I didn't, but it also allowed me to thrive in an environment where, you know, I could be who I wanted to be because I had no, um, nobody knew who I was when I came in. And um, that was pretty cool. But then from there, I went on to Penn State University, um, got my bachelor's there, 
uh, worked for about a year, realized that um, um, the job I had wasn't where I saw myself being in the future, went back to graduate school at University of Delaware. And, um, you know, as things went, I really didn't have much money for school. I paid most of my way through um, college at Penn State working in um, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup Factory. So I <laughs> did <laughs> quality control in the, in the chocolate factory, which was kind of cool. Did you get free Reese's, by the way? <laughs> All the time. I mean, back then, this was like in the 90s, so people would like eat them off of the line and stuff like that. Just, they don't do that anymore, but back oh, yeah. then it was all free for the taking, and, yo, uh, which yo. is pretty awesome. That's funny. But then the uh, <laughs> the assistantship I got to, uh, I ended up with a research assistantship at University of Delaware, and the program it happened to be in was microbiology. So for someone losing their sight, there's probably not a worse major to go into or worse field than microbiology. So right. <laughs> again, it, it, it trained me to adapt though, because um, what, I, what I found I was able to do is design the research programs and the protocols and everything. And then I started to lean on other people to actually come in and, and count the cells that were doing these different uh, staining techniques for live and dead cells and, and looking at, at different like RNA stains, but um, actually counting the number of cells through a fluorescent microscope was difficult. So um, hmm. I did all the data processing and all of the um, other stuff. And um, I had some fellow students that I would coax to come in at, you know, two in the morning when I had access to use the microscope and count cells for me. Right. <laughs> the good outcome is one of those students became my wife and, and she's still yeah, a oh, huge wow. part of my life today. So, uh, yep. yeah, there are good outcomes that come from our, uh, what seems like a, a severely negative situation. That, that, that's a testament to, uh, if I didn't need help counting my, uh, my cells, I may not have ever met my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk, right? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> And then, yeah, so then just talk to me a little more about, uh, you know, advancing in your career beyond that. Yeah, career was good. Um, what I realized, you know, by, by graduate school time, you know, I was um, still not using a cane, not telling anyone I couldn't see, hiding it, but I had something significant to hide at that point. My uh, MO became just work harder. So oh. I would um, pretty much outwork everyone around me. and. Um, because it would take me longer to do certain things, you know, and sure. um, my way of doing that was to work harder. So I ended up with a, working for a division of Pfizer. Um, my uh, girlfriend, eventually wife, got a job in New York City. So we moved there and uh, I got a job with a division of Pfizer that had been sold a couple of times after joining. So my career was um, with a multinational company. Um, originally in research and development and technical service and um, product management and marketing. And um, I kept evolving into career paths that were less and less dependent on my eyesight and yeah. did this with only a few people in the company actually knowing that I had trouble seeing. I still wasn't using a cane. I wasn't, um, I wasn't uh, open about, you know, going blind. Sure. You know? But uh, by that point, I knew, you know, I had a couple years to go before, you know, I was going to be really have to switch to adaptive technology significantly in my career. But at the time, I still fended it off. I figured it out myself. I never went to the lighthouse. I never did anything like that. I just 
I, I found screen readers you know, online and downloaded one and would just use that. I figured out how to change the contrast on my monitor would do that. Yeah. It wasn't until like <laughs> six years into my career, five years into my career, that I finally said, you know what, forget it. I'm going to go to Lighthouse. I, yeah, I can't, uh, I have trouble getting around here. And I did. And man, that was such a, you know, eye-opening experience in a good way to actually go for help. Right. And in some ways, do you kind of wish, you know, looking back, you had done that sooner? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it would have been a lot less stressful for me to have done it sooner. Sure. However, there, there is this balance of, you know, we grow through stress. Um, you know, as any, you know, any bodybuilder knows or weightlifter or, or track athlete or any athlete knows, I mean, the way we get stronger and faster is to put a lot of stress on our body and then allow for enough rest and recovery to turn that stress into strength. And I think some of this stress I put on myself actually um, created this ability to solve problems very well. It created the ability to deal with people in ways without letting them know that I was blind. And so I think it would have been less stressful, but I think that those stressful times weren't all negative. Right. If that makes sense at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting kind of spin on it, but definitely makes sense. So let's transition to adaptive sports. And I know you did mention, you know, playing a number of mainstream sports as a kid growing up through high school and whatnot. Um, so when did you first and how did you first get into adaptive sports? Yeah. So the interesting thing here too, and I'm probably a terrible case study in this thing because I, <laughs> I actually never played any adaptive sports. Um, I adapted the sport I was playing to work for me, um, sure. in a way that I could do it, but I never really told anybody uh, again, you know, I went from playing, you know, uh, running back or, um, you know, tight end to being an offensive guard and, um, you know, a defensive end and, uh, moved to positions where I, I could play without having to rely on quite as much visual context. You know, I moved into track instead of baseball, for instance, uh, right. where I adapted the sport where I could run. And I, then I eventually became a thrower. You know, when I was more concerned about running into somebody else in the track, I'm like, wow, they put you in the middle of the ring and they tell you, okay, throw that way. And I can count my spin. <laughs> and as long as I get between the lines, I can go. And, you know, it was, that's what I'm saying. I just, I kind of adapted the sport to me versus having an adaptive sport. Um, subsequently I've come around to, uh, going towards much more adaptive endurance sports. And that's an interesting story too. So in my career, I actually, uh, I was always had this view of being an entrepreneur and, uh, in my mid thirties, by this time I was, you know, legally blind cane user, not driving, had two young children living outside New York city. And I decided to join with a friend and start a company in Colorado. So m my family you know, loved them. They were willing to do this and put all their faith in me as a, as a blind guy who really wanted to do something uh, career-wise. So we moved to Colorado. I joined with two other partners. We bought a small spice blending company and eventually turned it into this company called Rodell and became a, a world-leading vanilla extract company. And then um, was fortunate we, a uh, partner and I sold that to Archer Daniels Midland in 2018. So I exited from that one along the way. 
but it was while I was in Colorado that um, I started picking up a sport again in my late 30s. Interesting. And then, so was it running? Was that kind of your first, you know, as far as endurance sports? It was. And this was the thing because I had run some track in high school and I was, you know, decently fit and worked out through college and you know, always stayed, you know, always worked out. But while out here, again, the pressure of, you know, a startup company with partners and feeling like I was carrying my fair share of the weight was um, pretty high. And I started to uh, gain weight and have more negative health outcomes from it. And as so often happens when, you know, we're blind and it's a little less comfortable just to, you know, go out our front door and go to the gym. Maybe if we don't quite know where it is or it's an unfamiliar place. So I started to um, lose a lot of that physical activity. And I was at the beach one time with my kids and they were making fun of me as a beached whale. And uh, I realized that, that I didn't like that. So I came back and I took my cane and I mapped out like a two mile route in my neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, I can, I can run. Yeah. The one thing I could do, it's quiet the streets and they're wide enough and on my cane. So hopefully I won't get hit. And I just started on my own again. I, I didn't know what a guide was. I didn't know anything about that. I figured I just, I could figure out the map, a nice, quiet two mile loop through my neighborhood. So I did that. And then, um, I'm pretty goal oriented. So after about a month of that, I felt good. Like I was getting in shape and I'm like, well, let me sign up for a race. You know? So I, I found a half marathon and I'm like, I'd never run a half marathon before in my life. So I'm like, this will be a stretch. I'll I'll sign up for this thing. And I went to runner's world and downloaded like a 13 week half marathon training plan and just did every workout in there again, all by myself. And I, I found, I figured out how to get access to one of the high school tracks. So I get a ride over there and I run on the track sometimes because um, I was pretty safe, not hitting anything. I would do a loop to make sure there was nothing on the track. And then I would you know, just run on the track. And I did a lot of my training that way. And it wasn't until a week before the race when it started to hit me that, man, there's going to be a lot of people here. And uh, what if I run into someone? I don't want to trip someone else. You know, what if they're going for their PR race. And then he got me like, you know, tripping over a cone. Right. So I called the race director and just said, you know, I, I emailed him, I think. And I said, what do you think? You know, I'm, I'm blind. I've trained for this, but um, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable running myself. And he was fantastic. He just said, Oh, no problem. He goes, give me a day. I'll put this out to our community and I can find somebody that will run with you. And, and literally I got like five emails later that same day. You know, mm. people saying, I'll run with you. So I had no idea what a guide was, I, you know, or anything, but I just found a friend that would run with me and we figured it out and it went great. You know, it was fantastic. Wow. So then after that event, you pretty much knew this is what I want to pursue, continue to do this. Yeah. Well, that's where, that's where, um, you know, being blind made a very individual sport, like running into a team sport. Um, it was Connie, um, who was the, the woman that, that I ran with and she was fantastic. So she called me up like a week or two later and go, Hey, you know, there's a, we're putting together a team for the Denver marathon back then it was still the Denver marathon. And she goes, you know, if you want to run one of the legs, I'll run it with you. And then of course I'll run my own too, because she's just an awesome runner. <laughs> and I said, sure, I'll do that. So by this point, I, um, 
printed out a piece of paper um, that said blind on it and uh, pinned it to the back of my shirt. And uh, I ran that way with her and it was so great. Like I had such a good time at a big city race, you know, being in a marathon, you know, even as a relay that I thought this is awesome. Then she called me up and we did another half marathon. And by that point I was like, okay, yeah, let's run a marathon. You know, I was ready to go. And uh, that's what it took. It took a good friend to say, Hey, you want to do this? Sure. Sure. Yep. Little arm twisting. Right. And <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or just somebody willing to say, Hey, we can figure it out. You know, I'll do it with you. Oh yeah. And like you said, the one gentleman that was, you know, so excited to help and put the word out about a guide and everything that's, that doesn't always happen, obviously, as I'm sure, you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't. And then again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I, I tend to be the figure it out and, and ask questions later. Then I realized there's groups like Achilles and there's groups, there's fantastic groups out there that, that do this and, and help people find guides and, and set up training, do all these fantastic things that um, I've become very involved with now, which is awesome. Definitely. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about, uh, you know, the guide, the, the blind runner and the guide relationship. And I'm, I would imagine you've had a number of guides, you know, over your, your endurance uh, career here. And just what do you think makes a successful team and what kind of communication is, is really key to make that work? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Everyone is different. And um, I always tell the guides, and, and maybe this is just me. Um, but I, I tell them up front that um, it's your job to point things out. And it's my job to react, to understand the language you use and to react to what you're telling me. So this has become very important on trail running and getting into other, other events like this, where I use multiple guides and I'll have different people with me. And, um, you know, the vocabulary is very different. I'll run with a, with a good friend like Allison, who says everything's like little step up, big step up. Okay. Huge step. Okay. Big jump. And then I run with another good friend, Brad, who's, you know, very precise with everything in two strides. There's a six inch rise. Okay. There's a three inch divot in one step. Yeah. He's just very <laughs> precise and very accurate. And yep. I've got to process all this, you know, mentally quickly. So my job is to kind of quiet my mind, listen to what they say and just, just flow with it and not get too caught up in, um, in the race and it just really kind of focus on them as the guide. It's definitely, I, I find myself pretty flexible in running with all different types of guides. And that's one of the things I, I try to keep myself in a way that allows my options to stay open by being very flexible on my side to adapt to my guide as much as they're adapting to me. Cause I realize many, many of them have never done this before. It's as new for them as it is for me. Sure. Great point. And yeah, obviously versatility, it sounds like is, is so important. Mm-hmm. I will sometimes have a guide, um, like say we're running in Boston or, or New York city, a marathon like that. That's big and lots of people. I'll, um, I'll actually have them run with someone else and put a blindfold on and, hmm. or even just walk you know, just because I find that that's really insightful for them. It's very uncomfortable for them sometimes, especially to run. So even just walking is good, but walking through a park, you know, even a couple hundred yards, it's really insightful for them. They're like, well, okay. Okay. What info do I need to have in order to do this? 
and it gives them a better insight into, okay, what information do I need to have, you know, communicated from them, you know? Sure. Because sometimes they just don't think of something like they're looking at the ground, they might forget about branches or um, something that they would just go around instinctively without even thinking about it. But yep. when you don't see it, it becomes a big deal. And to experience that, then they know that they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they become much more aware and attuned sometimes. Exactly. Yep. Great points. I understand that you were at the, uh, you did compete in the, the 2013 Boston Marathon, correct? Oh, I did. Yeah. That was my second Boston. And uh, yeah, crazy story. Uh, one, my 12 year old daughter was there with me. She's been volunteering since she was 11 at the MAB. Uh, in Boston. And so great story in the fact that we went back this past October and she ran the second half of the marathon with me um, on her 21st birthday. Yeah. Oh, wow. so <laughs> we've been doing this thing together for, for nine years now. And uh, she yep. trained and, and ran the second half as my guide. It was fantastic. But um, back then she was waiting at the finish line for me um, by herself, although with the, with the team, with the, team with the vision crew from Massachusetts association for the blind. Hmm. And, um, I was in the last corral of the first wave. And, um, I was like, Oh man, this, this kind of stinks. Cause I got, you know, six, 7,000 people in front of me. And that's a very difficult spot for a blind runner to be. So right before the race started, I actually asked the official, I'm like, Hey, is, am I allowed to jump back? one corral can i go in the first corral of the second wave hmm. and they said you're very welcome to jump back but you can't go into the first corral so if you go back you can jump into the second corral or anything behind that in the next wave and i thought like just game day decision like right there in the corral waiting i'm like well no point jumping back to the middle of the crowd we might as well just start in the end and the the waves were 20 minutes apart at that point. So our first wave started at 10, the next wave started at 10 20. Well, I crossed the finish line, like literally like right at 20 minutes before the bomb blast went off. Wow. And mm. so I was, um, making my way around, had just met up with my daughter. We were just around the block, like half a block away with just this, this, you know, body shaking, boom hit. And then we just dead quiet. And then maybe it felt like forever. Maybe it was like you know, five seconds later, 10 seconds later with a second blast. And by that point, um, you could smell it. There was smoke. Um, she had said that there was smoke coming around the corner from where the building was. And there were people screaming and running everywhere. And we didn't know. It sounded like a crane fell off a building or something like that. You know, right. and they were talking, there was a gas main blew up or something like that. She was fantastic as a 12 year. I mean, I could barely walk cause I put everything out there on this <laughs> one. And she's like, I just need to get my dad out of here because something's going on. It's chaos. And she like hustled me up to the corner and somebody was getting out of a taxi and credit to her as a 12 year old. She just like pushed, she, when they got out, she pushed me in the door and just like, just get in. Yeah. <laughs> and I did. And she jumped in too. And the taxi was like, oh, well, I, we're like, you know, look, you just need to go. And uh, we were right. staying in Cambridge. So we just left uh, at that point. And then um, later on, we we're watching on the news and, 
you know, some of the people you know, seriously injured were the people she was talking to and hanging out there in the stands right by the finish. So, mm-hmm. you know, this feel, you know, for something so devastating and, and, and harmful to happen, you know, to be so close to it, just, you know, really made it very real. And, um, you know, to have your, your daughter with you, your young daughter with you at that time is just, you know, you realize that, uh, you know, bad things happen. And I'm just so thankful that, um, you know, we were okay and just feel bad for, very bad for those that, that were injured or killed. Right. Yeah. And like you were saying before, timing, you know, in life, timing is everything. And, you know, one little thing here or there and, um, you know, who knows what, what could have happened to you guys or it's just one of those things in life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just that game day decision to say, you know, I'll stick with the 10 a.m. wave instead of the 10 20 wave because, you know, it just calculated my timing. I would have been right at the finish, right at the time the bomb went off. And probably because right. Tal was, Tally was tracking me, she would have been right at the finish line, too. So yeah. that was the, that was the, the thing. You just don't know. It's just, just, you know, just fate sometimes. Absolutely. No doubt about that. Uh, so let's move on to triathlons. So I know you have uh, competed in triathlons as well, right? Oh yeah, I love triathlon. You know, um, I, I I joke with my friends that I race in order to train. You know, I'm kind of backwards, and it's like because I love the training, and sure. you know, I'm I'm not the most you know competitive racer. I, of course, I love checking my time and things like that. But, but my place isn't the most important thing to me. I, I realize I'm not going to be first in most of these races. Competitive, but not ultra competitive. And um, triathlon is a perfect sport for that. If you love to train, you can just layer it on. And it's all about the science of, you know, what can I combine today that still allows me to recover enough to do a meaningful workout tomorrow. And again, it's that science of stress plus rest um equal strength and triathlon is the ultimate sport for for building that strength through you know mostly focusing on recovery more than anything and uh no i loved it did a couple um a couple shorter races then we did a couple half iron mans probably my favorite race was the boulder iron man i think i was like in 2017 and um oh, just such a beautiful course was um was one of those situations where I almost uh, 10 days out from the race, I almost wasn't able to compete because I, I don't know how it is today, but back then Ironman would not let a blind competitor compete with more than one guide. Hmm. And Interesting. I was really struggling. I was looking everywhere. I couldn't find somebody that was willing to do the entire race with me as a guide. And, and rightfully so most of my training friends and everything, they were training for their own races and the recovery time needed from an Ironman is significant that it would impact their race season. Cause this was, um, early June was the race. So, uh, Ironman wouldn't budge, you know, I'm like, oh, come on, just, you know, I can't even compete. Technically I'm a participant uh, because there is no qualifying for Kona as a blind, um, triathlete. You, you just have to enter the lottery, no matter how fast we are. Um, we can't qualify. Uh, because we ride a tandem. Um, so rules allow us to be participants, but not competitors. So I'm like, what's it matter? I can't, I can't qualify for anything anyway. Just let me use two guides. Uh, right. let, let somebody else run with me and, and uh, a different person, you know, swim and bike, but that's not the way it worked. And 
then just so happened, I saw a message from uh, a swim coach friend that I had used when I first started getting into triathlon. She had moved to Georgia, but was still coaching a bunch of people in Colorado. And I saw that she was coming out so out of the blue. I was like, hey, Wendy, um, any chance you'd be into, you know, actually racing Boulder Ironman with me? And um, like, like she, she's a serious triathlete. I mean, like she won, I think, the women amateur Kona in like 2008. So just mm. seriously good triathlete and, and a coach. And she, you know, just came back and she goes, I don't know, let me think about it. And she came back and she goes, if you teach me how to ride a tandem, I'll do it with you. And I'm like, okay, deal. When are you coming out? And it was like three days before the race. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, we can figure this out. And I mean, kudos to her. That's what I talk about. You know, guides are amazing. You know, the pressure, it, it, it was, it was my race, but yet she came out and, you know, we got out three times on the tandem and she, she'd never ridden the tandem before. And it's a serious change for somebody who's used to running their race to now switch and run someone else's race, you know, for them or with them. Right. And, um, especially something like riding a tandem when we're on a course that a pretty hilly course. It's, it's, you know, known not to be the safest course in the world. And um, there's a lot of pressure and stress on her. And we just had a great time. I mean, we, we did great. Uh, hit my time goals. Everything was perfect. Um, the bike course was two miles longer, which they joke just because it's Boulder. They, they did that, but um, <laughs> it was great. No, that, that was my best triathlon experience. Sure. Sure. And I'm curious of the three, you know, running, cycling, swimming, uh, which, which would you say is most challenging? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, swimming is my weakest sport, hmm. but honestly, it's the easiest to do. Well, I wouldn't say these. It's a, it's not too difficult to do as a blind athlete. Now I don't want to get any negative criticism for that because it's not an easy sport, but when you get the technique down, it's not too difficult to do as a blind athlete compared to everybody else, because you got to realize everyone's getting pummeled in the water. Everyone's getting their goggles kicked or you know, stuff like that's going on. Pushing the pace as a swimmer is tough. So I would say that was my toughest one. By this point, I was getting quite comfortable on the bike, able to ride pretty well. So that was good. And then I'm not, I'm not the greatest natural runner. Like genetically, I'm not a great runner. I have more, um, I have more will than form. All right. Um, but at the end of an Ironman, I mean, very few people are running a, a, a good, hard, fast marathon. You know, it's more like getting through it, you know, in a decent time. So that was good. Gotcha. Yo. And then I know you've done uh, several, uh, you know, events running and summoning mountains, uh, mountaineering, whatnot. I'm definitely curious about your Grand Canyon experience. Yeah, this was awesome. This was a, a friend of mine, uh, Charles Scott, who uh, we eventually co-founded Team C Possibilities together. But um, he and I ran the New York City Marathon uh, back in 2011. And it, we were friends going back a decade before that. Uh, he had never guided before, and I didn't realize how nervous he was about guiding when I asked him. He said yes right away because I knew he was a very accomplished Ironman triathlete and marathoner. And um, it was a realization for me on how much stress it can be for a guide, you know, to run it together in a crowded marathon. Um, but it went great. We did fantastic. And then we went on to do some half Ironmans together and um, doing one of them in New York. And 
he had mentioned that he was thinking about going back to run rim to rim to rim at the Grand Canyon. And uh, would I be interested in doing it? And I just said, well, I never run more than a marathon. It's 46 miles there. But right. hey, if you're up for guiding, I'm up for trying. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And then um, we, we get two others together. Um, two other friends that came and joined. So we had three guides in me. And then another friend of mine who I trained with here joined us as well. So there were five of us in total. And we went and just just figured it out. Different guiding techniques there. Um, sometimes I would use a, a hiking pole or two hiking poles and have the guide in front hold it so I could have a rigid tether to them. Other times going down like steeper trails, I would actually hold on to their packs, their running packs. And therefore, if I tripped, my weight would push against them. And they were holding a hiking pole so they could balance a pole to absorb some of their weight. And I could move a lot faster going downhill that way. And then uphill was a lot of voice commands. It's just a lot of voice commands. Sure. But yeah, no, we did it. We got, a, we got some really nice um, publicity about it. And that was the spark for us creating Team C possibilities. Is we, we then looked at the, the four of us got together afterwards and said, you know, hey, how can we take something we love doing and turn it into something that, that's meaningful and has purpose beyond just us? And um, that's how we formed Team C possibilities. Sure, sure. And let's go ahead and get into that, uh, just kind of how, you know, athletics and this whole idea, you know, of this, this organization merged and then came together. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, you know, during this time, you know, through the, the, the early 2000 teens on the career front too, my career and confidence grew and blossomed as I became more comfortable as an athlete. And it was probably around 2013, 14, before the Grand Canyon. When all of a sudden I woke up one day and I self-identified as an athlete versus somebody going to work out. Hmm. And I saw that carryover in my confidence in my work as well. And then I started layering the two. So I would run on the track near my office at lunch. And this became my break point. And I, I became quite a reputation for... Um, you know, I, I do workouts there on the football field with like kettlebells and slam balls. And I actually bought a uh, baby jogging stroller <laughs> that I kept at my office. And I'd load it with, you know, 35-pound dumbbells, you know, a 45-pound kettlebell, 20-pound slam ball. Yo. And I'd push it over to the track. And I'd mm. work out there at lunch. So, you know, this thing of becoming an athlete became part of my identity and I was able to weave it into my career uh, at the time. Yeah. Of course, um, I, I was also CEO of the company, so it wasn't like, you know, not too many people were going to say anything too disparagingly, but uh, <laughs> it was, it was good. You know, it was a, a good way that I saw that the, the, the confidence is everything and the hard work, you know, again, it came down to it fit my kind of MO about, you know, it's not going to be easy. We're going to have it tougher than other people have it. But as a, as a football coach, you know, I always remember saying he was actually a football coach for my son. Always said that hard work beats talent, you know, especially when talent doesn't work hard. So that's my motto that I always use. It's like, I don't have to be the best out here. I just have to be the hardest working at it. And, um, 
and persistence, you know, sticking with it. The one that, the one that gets knocked down and comes back up and, and it's all about getting back up. It doesn't matter how many times we're knocked down. The more times we get back up, the better we are. And, um, that was kind of my MO that I took into, um, athletics too, which I found very, very useful. Um, because sometimes it was just really hard to get out my front door. You know, sometimes I just, I just didn't want to go out and struggle with how am I going to get to the track? Um, who do I have to guide me today? The, the frustration of lining that up is, yep. is sometimes really hard and just, you just don't feel like dealing with that. Right. So forming team C possibilities, it gave, it gave that a purpose. So now we were focusing on schools for the blind all around the world. We would, we would commit to these things, you know, a year out, nine months out, we'd say, okay, we're going to Peru. We're going to run, you know, the classic Inca trail, the four day hike. And we've got 13 hours to complete it. Otherwise we, they're not going to let us through the gate at Machu Picchu. So we did that. We, we let people know, we put out a press release. So all of a sudden the pressure was on and you know, we're playing soccer at a school for the blind in Lima. And we're meeting with the, the ministry of education about accessible education, you know, in Peru along the way, because we attract media attention. So what that did on the back end for me is, okay, I may not want the frustration of trying to line up a guide or, or worrying about getting out the door. Or can I run on the track today myself? Is the sun too bright or not bright enough? And am I going to struggle? It just became something I figured out, well, that's nice, but I've got to go do it. And um, it gave me purpose that I found really healthy. Right. Very interesting. So just a little more on, you know, team C possibilities. So it sounds like there, there's several, it's kind of a multifaceted approach that you guys have to, to what you do. Yeah. Our goal is um, to do an, a, a, an epic endurance challenge. We call them um, on all seven continents. Hmm. And we'd like to find something that a blind person's never done or, or is just not known to be able to do. Um, so with that, um, we have been to Peru. We ran the classic Inca trail just all in one day, uh, 27 wow. miles, you know, um, fantastic thing. We've been to, uh, Kilimanjaro, you know, we had originally had plans to, um, do the entire ascent without stopping. We were taking the Northern route, uh, I think it was a Rungai route up to the top and we we're going to do it all in one shot, you know, just straight through. But our, we got hit with permits that we couldn't do that because of the guides we had to have hired guides with us there and, uh, they could do that so instead we did the speed ascent we did it in about two and a half days um and that was cool and then we've done back-to-back uh, -back trail runs like 50 50 plus k trail runs up north island and south island in new zealand uh, which was just fantastic it was a really cool place to be uh, we've done 100 kilometers along the great wall of china um and there we were partnered with uh, UNICEF and then um, went to Thailand and did a lot of work in, um, in Thailand with schools for the blind there, as well as visiting several in China also. And, and China just has a very good system I and mean, they, they were well fun. At least the ones near Beijing were, um, were um, pretty well equipped, which was nice. 
Um, but we got to go to some rural Thailand schools. And I got to play go ball with, uh, you know, a class. I kicked my butt yeah, out there <laughs> in this like open pavilion in, uh, on very close to the Laos border in, in Thailand. And these kids are just fantastic. And uh, it makes you wow. really realize people are people all over the world, you know, blindsided. You know, kids are kids. They just want to have fun. They want to figure out their place in the world. And um, if we can do a little to help that, you know, through fundraising or uh, mentorship or um, exposure, you know, that's just something we can do. Exactly. Really fascinating. I just, all the places you've been and visited and it's, it's really something. And I, I am curious, just your perspective on, you know, you kind of touched on it, but just how maybe how blindness is perceived around the world. And um, I, th I feel like a lot of people think the U.S., you know, we Obviously, we are very lucky in a lot of the resources we do have uh, for the blind and visually impaired. But how would you kind of, you know, frame the rest of the world? Uh, have you visited any places where it was quite an eye opener that there's, you know, quite a lack of funding, a lack of support for the blind and visually impaired community? Definitely. And that, that's a difficult question because we have to put it in context with the local culture wherever we are. So again, most of my career now, uh, um, my, my partner and I had a vanilla extract company. So most of my career was spent in Africa. So Madagascar, Uganda, Tanzania, you know, Rwanda, and then Southeast Asia, like Indonesia. And um, we're in very rural areas a lot of times where the, where the vanilla farmers are. And the perception of somebody being blind there it's really just different, you know, and it runs, it runs the gamut, you know, we just have to always keep it in cultural context. I just got back two weeks ago, I was in Senegal. So I do, I do a lot of work now with um, African tech startups. Most of my business work now is all around, um, um, you know, mentoring and investing in and, and working with um, you know, disruptive technical startups in Southeast Asia and Africa where they can make a huge impact on human life and just improve the quality of life for so many people. And it's interesting. So in, 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 in the car, there's a lot of cars, you know, no pun intended, but uh, they, there's no parking. So all the cars park on the sidewalks and the sidewalks are usually just dirt. The roads are paved, but the sidewalks are dirt. Hmm. Uh, so you have all these buildings and then you have cars parked everywhere. And then there's like, um, almost like a ditch, you know, six inch deep that parallels the sidewalk and the road. And that's where when they, when they get heavy rains, that's the drainage. Um, but everybody walks on the road and there's cars, there's traffic on the road. So it, you look at an environment like that, you know, we're looking at like curb cuts and things like this in the U S or tactile markers. And then we go to a place like that which is a, which is a great city. I mean, I, I plan on being back there quite often, but in a cultural context, I mean, being blind there is significantly challenging. You know, there, there is no even sidewalks. There's rocks everywhere. There's, you know, there's broken concrete. There's, you know, stuff in, in every part of the city. On the flip side, everyone walks in the road. So all the traffic is very aware of pedestrians too. And, I do find a mix of people that are unsure of what to do with me and people that are very helpful, you know, to the point of like, 
I'm going to stop traffic because there's a guy with a cane who can't see here. You know, <laughs> it's, um, yep. it, it just runs the gamut and it's very contextual based on the culture too. So I, I really have a hard time, you know, judging any of that because if we look at the quality of life, say the average, the average or the median person living in Dakar, it's significantly different than, you know, the average person living in Denver, even though they're about the same size of cities. So it's just hard to say. That being said, I mean, there are schools for the blind in all around the world. And I've seen some fantastic work being done and exposure and integration. In Senegal, for instance, they integrate blind students into the mainstream school system and they provide support, much like we do here. Um, I've been to other countries that take a different approach where also, like we do here, where they have schools for the blind and they, they pull students out of mainstream schools and, and put them into, you know, specific schools that are really focused on maximizing their education. And, uh, you know, I think both work, you know, it's, it's very dependent more on the situation on the ground than the concept, I believe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I definitely appreciate that insight, it's, you know, just getting the opportunity to be in those environments like you've had I'm sure puts a lot into perspective and then, like you said, context, and it's, it's a big part of it. Well, destroying the stereotypes and whether the stereotype is, you know, a, a person in California or Kansas or in, in you know, a, a small town in Senegal, when they have a child who's blind and they think they can't do anything, I've got to just keep them at home and, and you know, keep them fed and that's it. And that, that, that often well-meaning protectiveness happens everywhere in the world. And what we do, half of our mission at TSP, a major part of this, is just being out there as the models about what can be done. You know, just destroying those preconceived notions of what's possible and help people realize, parents, teachers, you know, students themselves, that it's a choice. And these can be very hard choices to make, but it's still a choice um, oftentimes about um, what's possible and what we want to try to do or attempt to do. So that's what we do a lot. A lot of our inspiration, I, I don't like that word necessarily, um, yeah. but I do like the role modeling. And that, that's really what we've evolved Team C possibilities into is we work with college students now. We have 18 students in the cohort this year. Um, the application just opened in the beginning of March and runs through the end of April. Hopefully, we'll have a lot of returning students and we have room for new students joining. And this is college-age students that we're really focusing on bringing in mentorship and uh, peer-to-peer connection and creating those role models for the future. So that these are the students that are out there going to college doing it. And we want to, we want to have them seen, you know, we want to have them seen by the community to say, well, my kid doesn't have to go to college, but if they have the aptitude and the will, there's no reason that they can't. And we just want to get rid of the belief that, well, they can't. Exactly. That's, that's fantastic work, Dan. I definitely hand it to you and your team for, everything you guys are doing definitely definitely making a difference yeah it's it's fun it's rewarding though i mean we we love it i mean we're all none of us uh, none (laughs) of us chose where we were born or what condition we were born with i mean we we just you know got what we got in that you know lottery and um you know it's it's 
more in our attitude and, and how we deal with it than um, and how we how we live with it, positive or or worse. You know. Absolutely, well said. And then just to wrap up here, I did want to ask uh, one final question about in terms of you know sports, athletics, just being active in general. Um, I know you had you know referenced some struggles your, yourself about just getting out the door, getting active, whatnot. And what kind of advice would you give to someone listening to this who maybe wants to get more active, uh, who is blind or visually impaired, and just to kind of take that that first step or that next step? Um, I think I'm just thinking back here. I mean, I think first of all, it's perfectly okay to be frustrated and to not know how we're going to do this. I have that all the time. I mean, all of us face that from time to time, sighted or not. It's okay. The one thing I would say is, you know, don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, find something we enjoy doing and, and then just go do it. The other is reach out. You know, there are organizations and programs that are out there that, that really pair people together in a good way. And we don't have to do this on our own. And if someone is very into sport or, or maybe not into sport, just wants to be active, there are so many um, opportunities to get out there. And even outside the blindness organizations, uh, like I say, it took me years to discover a group like Achilles. But what I found is my local Fort Collins running club, you know, they didn't have a program for blind athletes, but they had dozens of people that loved the fact that they'd run together with me. So sometimes just, just find something that we might like to do and just put the word out. Um, it's scary sometimes to do that because we're, we'd be careful not to overcommit sometimes, but really I found that just, you know, emailing the running club, you know, the first time or this race director and the level of support and stuff that came back from the community was great. Um, I took up rowing, um, six or seven years ago, maybe eight years ago now, and rowing is just such a fantastic sport for somebody who's blind. So rowing is just, you know, really good because everyone in the boat, nobody should be watching their oars anyway. You know, one of the drills they do when you're all together with a crew in a boat is wear a blindfold, you know, because mm -hmm. it's so much about feel and we can contribute equally, you know. Um, you got to watch out for the rigors on the dock and stuff like that, which can be quite painful. But um, <laughs> once you're in the boat, um, it's such a good sport. So I think the, I think the thing I would say is um, it, it is scary and that's okay, you know, to get started with something new like this. And it's okay to be frustrated, but um, reach out for help. And um, every time I've reached out for help, I've never been disappointed. One other comment on that too you, we have the opportunity to make somebody else's day. We often have the opportunity to make somebody feel really good about themselves. I rarely ever have somebody who runs with me or rides with me or even just helps me cross the street sometimes that doesn't feel good about doing it after it's been done. And we have that opportunity to help others feel good about themselves too. And it's not sympathy. It's just, it's just being human. You know, we all love to help and, and most people love to help too. And if we can give them the opportunity to participate in the sport together, you know, that's great. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And then uh, finally here, if anyone is interested in learning more about uh, your organization or finding more about, about uh, just some of your athletic achievements, uh, any websites, social media, anything you want to mention? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, TeamCPossibility.com is the place to go. It's uh, TeamSEEPossibility.com. And that is the place where um, we'll find out everything we're doing on the scholarship application is on there. Um, we're working on uh, Antarctica as our as our last continent, probably in the winter of 2023. So that's coming up. Also on a different thing, um, uh, three uh, blind athletes and I put together a team to compete in this race across America, uh, the toughest bike race in the world, they call it, um, back in 2018. And we're focusing on employment and ability and, again, breaking perceived notions. My teammates were, were fantastic. I mean, uh, general counsel at Facebook, um, you know, Department of Justice, you know, um, the prosecutor, you know, um, just fantastic career paths for people who were blind or are blind, as well as competing in this bike race. And we're putting together a full-length documentary film that hopefully we've been working on this thing for, for 18 months now maybe a little longer and we hope to have it released uh end of the second quarter this year so that's going to be under um a different group called um the team c to c and it's um s-e-a to s-e-e you know just the play off the words of you know it went from the pacific ocean and oceanside california and ended in annapolis maryland um Seven and a half days later, 24 hours a day, nonstop bike race. Wow. Yeah, I have read about that, and that's amazing. i really, you know, impressed and just blown away by that and that event as well. That is, a, that is an event of teamwork to the, to the nth degree and a, a fantastic um, experience about just, just humans working together under extreme stress, both the crew and the riders just such a such a moving experience that that was no doubt yeah i'd love to do a, a future podcast episode on that specific event so i may be in touch about that <laughs> yeah maybe when it comes out maybe we can arrange a screening or something when when we when we go um you know maybe later this year absolutely for sure that would be a lot of fun all right so again our guest here on eyes free sports has been dan berlin and Dan, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for the insight and, and just everything uh, that you're doing personally, professionally. And thanks again for being a guest here on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's been really, really enjoyable. I appreciate being here. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports. Sports.